0: Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places, and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. If you enjoy what we do, then rate and review. You can become a patron for as little as £5, and that's where we share additional videos of the interviews with you, plus lots of other unique content. You can help us keep this podcast advert-free. We deliver walking tours of London for those who love London, no matter whether you're a Londoner or a visitor. We will help you make the most of London. Check out our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk, for a full selection of guided walks and private tours. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is James Wright from Triscoll Heritage. He's an award winning buildings archaeologist. He has two decades' professional experience of ferreting around in people's cellars, hunting through their attics, and digging up their gardens. He hopes to find meaningful truths about how ordinary and extraordinary folk lived their lives in the medieval period, and he is the perfect guest to talk about today's subject, which are medieval toilets in London. So James, what did we call toilets back in the medieval times?
1: Okay, so there's lots and lots and lots of terms for toilets. Um, I suppose as there is today, uh, we tend to approach the subject of toilets in a qu- quite euphemistic fashion. There's a slight embarrassment about it, isn't it? We refer to it as a water closet or the bathroom. Uh, and of course, that's not really facing head on what is going on within that particular space, namely, going to the toilet. So in the medieval period, and stretching into the 16th, 17th century, which is also in my period as well, we can find phrases such as the very polite uh, camera privitae, which obviously means private chamber in Latin. So Allowing for the fact that this is a secretive, private space, we might find necessarium being used it for monks' toilets in a monastery. The necessary, because as, 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 as we all know, it is entirely necessary. Literally everybody has to go to the toilet. And then you've got other words which are maybe more colloquial. So things such as the foreign, as in you're going somewhere which is foreign, maybe a distant place. And that sort of uh, plays in as well with this idea that toilets are at a remove from the house quite often. So they're not right there in the heart uh, of the house. And there's the French term long gain which literally means a far-off place. Um, so we can imagine the trudge to the bottom of the garden, to the, to the foreign, far-off place. And then when you get in there, there's all sorts of uh, other phrases as well. So a, a very popular one, particularly in the 16th century, and Shakespeare picks up on this, is the Jake's. Uh, and that seems to mean, uh, well, Jake is at that time is, is a, is an ordinary person's name. And it's the equivalent of going to the John, which is quite an American phrase. So Jake at that period in time was an ordinary person's name. So you're going to the Jake's to do something very ordinary. And um, because of course, as you say, everybody is doing that kind of thing. And then there are also these euphemistic words such as the garderobe, which is French for wardrobe. And and there is the connection between wardrobes, a place to store valuables, to store clothes and the toilet as well. Um, so you might often have um, a private chamber where you would actually receive your guests. Off that would be your wardrobe where you've got your valuables and off that would be your toilet. So quite often the word toilet is used euphemistically the guard the wardrobe is a euphemism for the toilet because you pass through the wardrobe to get to the toilet so there's all sorts of different phrases which we might expect to, to need to know if we were asking where to go to the bog in the medieval period what
0: signs do you think for public toilets
1: I think that's difficult to know. I don't quite know how they would have known where the public toilet was. So that that one's blindsided me slightly. Um, In the medieval period, if we think about signs, the most commonly known signs are, of course, for pubs. And they're not literate signs they are going to be uh, pictorial signs so we have pubs now called the red lion the white heart the bunch of grapes and those signs would have shown a white heart a red lion a bunch of grapes that would be how you would uh, uh, how you would advertise what's going on in there so maybe they have a, have a toilet seat Hanging off the uh, off the wall, we could imagine something like that may have alerted people to, uh, to to where to go. But good question, and one that has slightly blindsided me, and I'm quite happy to admit that.
0: Even now, like for public toilets now, you're sort of searching around for, for a sign desperately if you get caught short. And I'm just thinking, especially when um, so many people um, visiting London and, and about, you know, not necessarily familiar with the streets and also not being able to read, then a pictorial sign um, definitely makes the, the most sense of it all. Mm.
1: We do know that they had public toilets, though, because they do enter the historical record. So uh, quite famously, there was two on London Bridge. Um, which was of course the only river crossing right the way up until oh, gosh what was it the 18th century i think before we got another bridge over the river and so there was there was one at each end of london bridge one at the southwark end and one at the um the city of london end and i'm not sure which one of them it is um, because it's not made explicit in the record but it is known that there was a, a debtor who wished to avoid his creditors uh, this is medieval period and he says oh yeah I'll, I'll come and pay you that in a moment i'm just going to nip to the toilet in here and then he runs out of the back door. So we get a little bit of information about this this public toilet because it appears in a court record, and that's kind of how we know about these things. But also, when we're uh, trying to dig into that information, all of a sudden we might be surprised to know that there's two entrances into this because he's able to go into one entrance and run out the back door. Um, yeah. So you know, we, maybe we've got one's an entrance, one's an exit. I don't quite know how it works, but you know, we know about public toilets as a direct result of, co- of court records quite often. Or maybe records to do with maintenance of these sites. So we hear, for example, in twelve thirty-seven of the necessary house, which was built at Queenhive by um, by Maud, formerly Queen of England, and the quote is for the common use of the citizens. So that would be quite an old toilet by this period in time, because Maud is is, is queen. This is Matilda, uh, Matilda right. and Stephen. Uh, this is. Going back maybe a hundred years, and we we're still finding records of this toilet in the 1230s. So you know these are buildings which need to be maintained. They need to be upgraded. You know, a hundred year old public latrine in 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 Queenhithe, which is just off the north bank of the Thames. You can probably imagine that that would need a bit of upgrading after that that, that long in time.
0: I think so yeah. Queen Hyde now they got this beautiful mosaic telling you the the history of um, London and the Thames and that toilet is nowhere to be found on the mosaic and I think that's just a missing piece of interesting history you know. Well I mean, there is I work as a buildings archaeologist some might call me
1: an architectural historian basically I do both and there does seem to be a general embarrassment in my trade about going to the toilet and i say this in the talks that i do on not just the talk i do on garderobes but also more generally when approaching the subject of historic buildings that quite often you can flick through wonderfully presented books and still be none the wiser as to where people were going to to the toilet in these amazing buildings, and it's not always made obvious. You can go round castle sites to this day, and you'll find out where the great hall was, the private chamber, where was the chapel, where were the kitchens, and you come to what I personally know is a garderobe, and there isn't a sign on the wall to tell you. And again, it's this embarrassment; uh, it's something that we don't want to talk about. But I think moving into a much more open society that we live in in the twenty-first century, people are more interested for one thing and less embarrassed so we can have conversations over the internet about going to the toilet in the medieval period with perfect ease uh but you know there has been this embarrassment and that's probably why we don't find it on our interpretation panels at places like queen Hithe. and and we should we need to have that changed
0: we do. We need to tell that story. So, yeah, so absolutely. We've got the two on um, London Bridge. And uh, that's interesting about having the, the two doors, you know, maybe an in and out. Because I thought you were going to say that maybe you lift the toilet seat and then jumped into the river.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there are stories about people uh, shimmying up and down latrine chutes, not from London that I necessarily know of. But there's a, there was a castle in Normandy called Chateau Gaillard where a soldier Snuck up the latrine chute to actually enter into the middle ward of the castle. Uh, this was a French soldier, and as a result of that, the English lost control of the castle. You know, they, it was an English castle, and they they were essentially defeated by a guy shimmying up a, a toilet chute. So things like that do happen, but not necessarily in London. But I'm sure it did.
0: Oh, brilliant! I know we both know about uh, Dick Whittington's Longhouse on the Thames. I think it's rather phenomenal, really, when you're thinking. Of- about the size of this, which had, they believe, 128 seats. Think
1: of yeah. that as a monster. Yeah, this is, this is one of those vast public toilets, which is part of a, a what you might call civic philanthropy. Dick Whittington, of course, famously Lord Mayor of London. Around the time when he was busy being Lord Mayor of London, the, the facilities are actually also upgraded at the London Guildhall as well. So, again, civic toilets. Whittington and, and the people in his time frame, the sort of early 15th century, do seem to have been quite interested in providing amenities for people to go to the toilet. Can you imagine just how many seats that would have been? We don't necessarily know if there were stalls between them. So it might have been quite a public environment. There is also some internal evidence for that, that they were actually segregated as well. So there was actually male and female access. So we're getting an an idea of the direction that public toilets later went in, where you get very separate spaces technically i suppose separate buildings all rooms within buildings and that seems to have been the case in the early 15th century with whittington's uh, longhouse as well
0: yeah I, I have read on several different sources that it was 50 50 mm. uh, for men and women which even nowadays that isn't when you think of urinals and cubicles for men we <sighs> don't get the same output opportunities on on our side so uh, maybe the medieval uh, people doing get a little bit better than we are
1: yeah, all good there. Well done, Whittington. He was a, a, a man ahead of his time, it would seem.
0: He was indeed. I don't know if you've been to uh, the Museum of London, James, but uh, they did a Lost Rivers exhibition back in 2019, and they had there a, a three-seater communal toilet seat.
1: Yeah, so I did used to work for the Museum of London. Um, I worked for their archaeology department until uh, the uh, what became MOLA. Museum mm-hmm. of London Archaeology, separated from the museum, and then I carried on working for MOLA, and of course the uh, toilet seat, which was discovered uh, I think on the banks of the fleet uh,
0: very, in, yeah. in an
1: excavated context, is on display I and mean, it was in their stores for a very long period of time and then was eventually brought out, it was discovered in the late 70s 80s, something like that, and was eventually brought out, and it is this wonderful long rectangular piece of timber where you can very clearly see where certainly two of the holes survive in this toilet and then there's a third one which is quite fragmentary it's in quite uh it's been stabilized that the timber has but it is in quite a fragmentary condition but yeah it gives you this 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 feeling this idea for what it must have been like to sit in Whittington's Longhouse because the seats are quite close together whether or not the, touching there must have been an etiquette there that you you, you, you you go and sit at the end of the row rather than immediately adjacent. Yeah, the idea of 120-odd Londoners all sitting down at the same time is frankly appalling. Maybe after some enormous event, you could imagine that they they might have have, have had that need. But, uh, you know, it, it, it would have been a particularly large-scale gathering of people for, for that requirement. One would hope that it was so big, essentially, to give people an element of privacy because you could sit... Far away from anybody else who'd come in. But yeah, there is that wonderful three-holer, as the terminology would have it. The terminology for those seats is quite often the word siege, which is deriving from the French word, the medieval French word for seat as well. So you would actually, that's another word for going to the toilet. You're going to the seat or the siege, as it would be in the time. Sometimes they call it the gong. That comes from a Saxon word, and it ultimately derives uh, the word for for, for going. Uh, So gong, going. So as in going to the privy, I'm going. I'm I'm, I'm going to sit on the going place. Uh, So those are some of the words, again, that we used for the physical manifestation of the seat, which also go on to become uh, euphemisms for the toilet as well.
0: And then gong farmers as well. Mm. then use it that same gong so the gong farmer
1: or the gong farmer is a job it's a legit job that you can get in the medieval period and your job is to clean out the toilets so many of these latrines you have a, a shaft and you sit above the shaft and the, the excrement, the effluent, drops down the shaft. And, it, and there's lots of different ways that they deal with that. Sometimes it goes into the river, presumably those at London Bridge. Sometimes it overhangs maybe a, a conduit, a water channel, something like that. In some places, it goes directly into the moat if you're in a castle. But in many places, it's going to go into a cesspit. And that cesspit will have an arch, and the, the gong farmer, the gong farmer, can actually go in there with his shovel and his bucket and actually clear that out. That's a that's a job that you get in the medieval periods, and it's well paid. Just to give you an example of how well paid being a gong farmer is, we know that in the 14th century, 13th and 14th century, if you were a stonemason, which is a very worthy craft, you'd be paid about fourpence a day. We know that from royal building accounts. However, we've got a record for cleaning out the latrines at Newgate in London, and they're being paid sixpence a day to do that job. So you're essentially being paid for it being an awful job, a really smelly, unpleasant job. You're getting 50% more wage than a, a stonemason or a carpenter who are on fourpence a day. And we get lots of references to sometimes them being paid by the day, so sixpence a day. But elsewhere, we get a reference in the 15th century to Thomas Watergate, who was given 40 shillings, which is a fairly eye-watering amount of cash in 1406. And Thomas Watergate is described as the Mundatory latrinarum. Uh, which means purifier of latrines, which I think is a much nicer uh, word than gongfama. And he is paid, and I quote, for cleaning out and cleaning a latrine under the chamber of the keeper of the king's privy seal. That's the chap who's responsible for carrying around the dirty great big seal, which the king has to apply to all of his royal writs. Uh, And he has his own chamber at Westminster Palace and um clearly he'd he'd filled up his latrine and poor old thomas watergate came down and cleaned it out but he was paid 40 shillings for the privilege so sometimes they're paid by task sometimes they're being paid by day but it's a it's a legit job and it's a well-paid job if they're cleaning it out the middens then where does where does it all go Well I mean there there are uses for it. We we know from again accounts that some of it is being taken out into the fields beyond towns and cities because it has a use as a fertilizer. We also hear of some secondary uses for it as well because it's being used in the manufacture of gunpowder saltpeter a part of the manufacture of saltpeter which is an ingredient in gunpowder requires feces so again there are secondary uses for it urine of course famously is used in the tanning industry which is why tanneries were generally outside of the towns because of the smell basically so you know they're using these things uh, and there is a, a you know a, a, a requirement for effluent and urine to be used uh, elsewhere So that there are secondary uses
0: do you think the gong farmers were actually then paid to provide the material do you think that was an extra bit so they're getting paid an extra 50 percent for doing the work and then they've got the problem or the challenge to get rid of it and then they can make money from that as well yeah
1: yeah i I think there is probably a follow-on fee there again so it's but you know if you if you can hold your nose there's probably quite a good living to be made as a gong farmer during the research for the talk that i recently gave on on this subject I, I, i was surprised to find that the what's called the olfactory response which is your, your sensation when you smell something for the first time. Obviously, it's so strong and it's you know, your, your first smell of a flower or a, some food cooking. The first time you smell it, it's such a, a deeply sensuous response. But over time, you'll actually get so used to it that after about 20 minutes, you'll no longer smell it. Uh, or you'll have to really deeply inhale. So if you're working in this unpleasant environment for a long period of time, it could be that, to be honest with you, you get used to it and you probably wouldn't notice it. Although maybe your friends and family certainly might notice it when you traipse in after a hard day of digging poo.
0: Yeah, but then again, if you're bringing home the money, then uh, it all (laughs) helps, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Toilet paper, what would they be using then? So
1: we've got pretty good archaeological evidence of this from from various excavations which have been done throughout uh, the city of london by all sorts of uh, archaeological specialists because occasionally we do get latrine pits being excavated and um, usually you're seeing the last usage of the latrine pit so you, you stand a pretty good chance if if the archaeological preservation is is is, is good which it is in a lot of London because you get a lot of waterlogged deposits you might start finding things such as um, straw we certainly get references to that in the documentary account but also it is sometimes found in the archaeological record from the dream pits they seem to use a lot of moss as well so moss gathering is another industry which we don't hear a lot about but there are people who are bringing mosses in they're also used medicinally as well but there are mosses such as the red stemmed feather moss the glittering wood moss well, that and the, yeah and the necara crisper varieties which have all been excavated from latrine pits and they seem to be there not because they're growing down there but because they've been thrown down there Um, we also get cloths very thin woolen cloths as well now that's a relatively more expensive material and we suspect that they are probably down there as a result of feminine hygiene so the the equivalent of the sanitary pads which are eventually being tossed into the latrine pits as well so they're probably not wiping their bums on the cloths so they're probably using straw and moss for that um, but then women are using cloths very thin cloths and then discarding those um, at the time of the month
0: Fantastic! It's all so interesting, isn't it? And there's so much that we don't know. Yeah, but the more excavation work that's done, we have to confront these
1: realities. And many archaeologists—it's a rare archaeologist who hasn't dug a cesspit. Um, but also, there's plenty in the in the archival record as well. And of course, we do have these things surviving physically. So I mentioned before the um, the early fifteenth-century latrines at the London Guildhall, which is, of course, a building that's open to the public. And if you go. Uh, to the end of the banqueting suite which is the part basement chamber at one end which has got lovely checkerboard flint and stone walls down there if you go to one end of it there's there's a couple of latrines contained within the thickness of the wall there they were accessed up some steps and then round the back the guild hall actually have a display where some archaeologists have excavated one of the latrine pits and you can actually see the arch of the pit Uh, and that's uh, an old museum of london archaeology excavation which has been preserved in situ so you can actually go and look at a medieval latrine in the city of london
0: isn't that fantastic well on that note james i'll uh, say thank you very much how can everybody find you and join any further talks that you're doing
1: Okay. So, I run a company called Triscally Heritage. Uh, Obviously, you can find uh, my web presence on there. It has lots of information about the services that we offer, but also we put lots of our reports and lots of our outreach on there. Um, I I, I occasionally appear on TV programs, so keep your eye out for things like the Great British Dig, which I sometimes act as a consultant on. Um, And um, I'm doing quite a lot of online talks. We've kind of missed the lockdown lectures, but I still will be drip feeding talks out i've got a few um plans coming up and they can be found by looking on our, our website but also i'm uh, a pretty avid twitter user as well and can be found on at jpw archaeology
0: we've added all of james's contact information onto the show notes so you go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and click on episode 64 hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and learned a few things i know i did